This is Mark Lieberman, the host of The World According to Mark, and bringing you a timely, important, interesting guest, Paul Ryan, who I'm pleased to have on the show for relatively short notice. Paul, thanks for being on the show. Nice to be with you. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Paul, I'll let him go into a, a little bit of a bio of who he is and what he's doing. But we're talking today about um, money in elections. We're talking about, um, we'll get into talking about some of the more recent things concerning legal expenses that are being paid by super PACs uh, for the ex-president as well as um, some of his employees and issues that that raises in terms of potential conflict of interest. But I want to um, let Paul talk to us about um, who he is and what his um, experience has been with all matters of elections. So I became somewhat obsessed, or I'll say I've been somewhat obsessed with the laws around how we do democracy in the United States, including elections, but not limited to elections, also government ethics and those sorts of things for about 25 years or so. And this obsession began back in the 90s when I was um, doing some grassroots volunteer advocacy work on candidate campaigns, ballot measure campaigns, other public policy issues. Um, and it was through that work that I came to understand and believe that our nation's election laws are pretty messed up and that we have long been working towards a real democracy, but we haven't gotten there yet. Um, we can always improve. And I've dedicated my career to that now for the past 20 plus years. Uh, okay, so the organization, and we'll go through again, some of the other ones that you were with, the organization that you're with now is, is what? I'm presently Deputy Executive Director of the Funders Committee for Civic Participation, which is a philanthropy serving organization, a membership organization made up of about 110 of the most active and generous philanthropic funders, supporters of democracy movement work, um, a mostly nonpartisan, nonprofit democracy movement work. So um, you also had come from, um, again, you're in your later years, and you're pretty young, so later is a relative term here. You worked uh, in a leadership team for Common Cause as vice president for policy and litigation. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I think that will key in on uh, Federal Election Committee and some other issues that we're gonna get into deeper. Yeah, I mean, would you mind if I went all the way back and then zoom forward and I'll kind of talk you through the, the trajectory of my career? Absolutely. So, so as, a, as a grassroots volunteer activist, I came to believe that our laws around democracy needed strengthening. At this time, I was living in Missoula, Montana, and there was one lawyer in the state on the progressive side of things that knew much and engaged in election law issues and campaign finance reform, voting rights. And he lived a few hours away. I got his phone number from a, another activist who knew him well, and I gave him a call and asked him for assistance writing some campaign finance reform ordinance language for the city of Missoula, where I was living. And in a nutshell, he said, sorry, kid, too busy to help you. Good luck. 
And it was at that point that I decided I needed to go to law school and become a lawyer who could work for free for progressive reformers who cared about democracy and were trying to build a, a multiracial inclusive democracy. And that's what I did. I moved from Missoula, Montana to uh, Los Angeles to attend UCLA School of Law. I chose UCLA because of the presence on the faculty of the author of the only textbook on election law at the time that had been published since the 1880s. This is a book that came out in the 90s, originally authored by a guy named Dan Lowenstein, Professor Dan Lowenstein. He taught at UCLA. I wanted to do election law. So uh, I went to the school to study with the guy who wrote the book on it, so to speak. Um, I began working for nonprofit organizations doing election reform work throughout law school, uh, both the Center for Governmental Studies in West Los Angeles. I also spent a semester plus a summer at the Brennan Center for Justice in New York City um, to get academic credit. Went, returned to LA for my last year of law school and was offered a job at the Center for Governmental Studies, a full-time job, which on the condition that I started working half-time during my third year of law school and then transitioned to full-time right after I finished school. So that's what I did. And I, so I began my full-time professional career in election law and policy at the Center for Governmental Studies in Los Angeles. Now fast forward a few years and in 2004, a job opening uh, I became aware of a job opening at the, at that point, pretty young and new organization, Campaign Legal Center. It had been formed in 2002. They were hiring a sort of junior level attorney to watchdog the Federal Election Commission and then to engage at the Federal Election Commission in administrative law, rulemaking proceedings, related litigation in the courts. I jumped at the chance. I felt fortunate to be hired into that role. FEC program director was my title initially, and I moved from Los Angeles to DC in 2004. I spent 12 years at the Campaign Legal Center, helping build it from an organization that upon my hire in 2004 had about a $1 million budget and five or six staff to, uh, when I left 12 years later, had a staff of more than 25 and a budget of uh, approaching 6 million. And it's continued to grow. I remain very close with the Campaign Legal Center. I love the work they do and appreciate them. Um, and then in 2016, another career opportunity arose, and that was to become vice president at Common Cause. Um, a few things appealed to me. Common Cause worked on a broader array of public policy issues than the Campaign Legal Center, and it was a much bigger organization. So jumped over to Common Cause in 2016, had the opportunity to help lead an organization with more than 100 staff, and at its peak during the Trump uh, administration years, about $35 million budget. So I learned a lot there in terms of how to manage a large nonprofit grassroots-based organization. And then um, happy to circle back and kind of drill down into specific work I did at these orgs, but giving you the painting you the picture of my full career trajectory. I then um, in about a year and a half ago, not quite a year and a half ago, had the opportunity to um, jump over to the philanthropy side of work. So I spent more than 20 years asking, begging foundations for money to support frontline legal and policy and grassroots work around democracy. I got the chance to step onto the philanthropy side and um, be in rooms, funder only rooms, and to uh, help inform and guide conversations among philanthropists about the work they were funding in the field. And so I jumped at that chance a year and a half ago. It's been, uh, again, another learning opportunity. So throughout my career, I've had these opportunities to learn different pieces of the democracy movement currently philanthropy. Um, learned a lot, loved my work. And again, as I said, I've been kind of obsessed with this stuff going back to the 90s when I was a volunteer activist and have uh, built a career around this.
Well, that's um, only about 10% uh, probably of your story, but we're going <clears> to <throat> leave it there so we can talk about what your views are on, on what, quote, is going on now. Um, I, I guess, you know, we can start at different points, but you've mentioned the Federal Election Committee. Uh, that's uh, organization comes up a lot lately and has in the last few years, um, including, including during the term of the ex-president Trump. Um, some people think that the federal election, well, let's talk about what they do, because some people have suggested they're, they're toothless. They're not doing <clears throat> very much at all. And uh, the establishment of the FEC, I guess, preceded an, uh, the Citizen United case. I'm not sure I've got the S's in the right place there. Um, so there was federal election regulation on um, what, how money could be raised, where it could go, and so on and so forth. But talk a little, I guess, uh, about F the FEC, and then we can move into the Citizen United, and you can give us a little tutorial on, on that. Sure. So the Federal Election Commission was created in the 70s, uh, most specifically by amendments to the Federal Election Campaign Act in 1974. And it has a major design flaw that has proven to render the commission to a certain degree, depending on who you ask, pretty ineffective. That design flaw is that it has an even number of commissioners, six commissioners. Um, the law states that no more than three can be from a single party. It doesn't require a Democrat Republican. It just says no more than three from a party. Historically, the FEC, the Federal Election Commission, has been made up of three Democrats and three Republicans. We've had some folks who have self-identified as independents, but were perceived by others to be Democrats. Um, so by and large, commission going back to the 70s split three three even number of commissioners um, some have said the commission was designed to deadlock and that's important because it takes a minimum affirmative vote of at least four commissioners to do pretty much anything to pursue an enforcement action I get you know when one files a complaint and over my career I filed dozens and dozens of complaints with the Federal Election Commission you need to get at least four votes to go through the enforcement process at several junctures. There's votes to keep the enforcement process going. Um, it takes four votes to issue advisory opinions when someone comes to the commission asking whether or not a proposed course of action is legal or illegal. Just about anything requires four votes. And on the most important matters before the Federal Election Commission, unfortunately, through mainly through its last 20 to 25 year history, it has been prone to deadlocking 3-3. A deadlock at the Federal Election Commission is inherently deregulatory because so much of what the commission, the commission's mission is to regulate the role of money in federal elections, only federal elections. Every state has its own campaign finance laws. Most have a campaign finance agency that's kind of a corollary to the Federal Election Commission, but the FEC is, is the watchdog, you know, the cop on the beat for money in federal elections. And it can't regulate if it can't get four votes, and it often can't get four votes because of the partisan 3-3 split on the commission. So it's a, been a frustrating career engaging with the Federal Election Commission. Um, had some wins here and there, but have had many, many disappointments, and you know we can get into some of those as we dig deeper into the law. Well, let me just pause for one, for one of the things that you said. 
I know that uh, this is uh, naive and Pollyannish of me, but with the FEC, with the Supreme Court, with Congress, with state legislatures, in this partisan divide that we have, it has always occurred to me that just because you are a Republican or a Democrat, that's where you're. That's where you voted. That's who you associate with. That's who people identify you with. That shouldn't shouldn't mean that that then determines how you would vote. But again, that's naive because that's where it's at. I don't know if it's been like that for our nation's entire history, but it seems that you know in the last 20, 30 years, that is the way it's at. If that's if that's the badge you wear on any controversial issue, and of course, everything that would be coming up to the FEC would be a controversy of sort, or it wouldn't be something they would be looking at. And so your badge is your decision. And I, I, I find that you know, intolerable, but it is what it is, as they say. And I'll say one thing about that, which might make not be intuitive to some listening or watching. And that is that there has long been partisan, the FEC has taken votes along partisan lines, but they have generally not done so with Republicans trying to protect Republicans and Democrats trying to protect Democrats. That's not the way these votes have gone. They've been partisan divides with respect to policy positions with a general inclination of the Republicans on the commission to not want to enforce campaign finance laws and to take affirmative efforts to weaken, in my opinion, campaign finance laws, regardless of whether the matter before them affected a Democrat or Republican. They want to let everyone off the hook. And among the Democratic commissioners, historically, there's been a, a stronger appetite and willingness to enforce the law, again, regardless of whether it's a Democrat or a Republican before the commission. So they're not they're not voting to protect their own, but they are voting pretty consistently over the decades on ideological partisan grounds to deregulate money in politics or be a little bit more open to regulation of money in politics. Interesting nuance, and I appreciate that. So uh, again, before we leave directly the FEC, um, is there any opportunity to expand the number of people and create um, a presumably uneven situation where it's not prone to deadlock so, uh, seven people or something like that. Is that a topic of consideration? It has long been a topic of consideration, particularly among the watchdog community. There have been bills introduced in Congress periodically throughout the course of my career that if passed would have revised the structure of the FEC to make it an even or an odd number of commissioners. So transition it from even number to odd number, not necessarily expanded, but definitely to go from even to odd. Um, that would help things reduce the number of deadlocks. But those bills have gone nowhere. And you know, that's the unfortunate reality. And it would take a Congress to pass and a president to sign such a legislation in order to change the agency's structure, to change the agency's power and authority. But there have been efforts made, the bills haven't gotten any traction on Capitol Hill. To be expected. So the very issue that is germane to this, which is the partisanship that's inherent in a 3-3 split is what prevents it from happening <laughs> because everyone who has input and is the ultimate deciders 
are still going to be split. Uh, yeah, and lines. I, yeah, and I, you know, and let's be real about it. Members of Congress, the rules of the game, the way we regulate or fail to re regulate money in politics, works for them for the most part. They won; they're in office, and it is that fact I think that leads many, if not most of them, to be disinclined to change the FEC, disinclined to change or strengthen campaign finance laws. Um, that's the reality. These members of Congress, they have no incentive. They have little desire to strengthen the agency that will maybe give them a headache down the road. I have one anecdote. It's not It's not an anecdote. I mean, it's, it's factual, historically based, but um, point of history. Back in the late 70s, in the FEC's first few years of operations, the FEC had random audit authority. So every candidate and every federal political committee files paperwork with the FEC on a regular basis to disclose the money they're raising and spending. The FEC in its earliest years had the ability to randomly audit committees, members of Congress included, and they used that power. And a few members of Congress who were audited seemingly didn't like it. So in the late 70s, Congress weakened the FEC by revoking its random audit authority and said, you can only audit us if you have cause. If you have, if you see serious red flags in the paperwork we file, then okay, we'll put up with an audit. But that's just one example to illustrate how not only was the commission designed to be weak, over the course of the years, it has been further weakened when the FEC has gone after some members of Congress who didn't like um, didn't like being watchdogged, didn't like the oversight. So yeah, long history of a largely ineffective commission. So <clears throat> the FEC was in the news even before some of the latest concerns have been registered about where money's going and PACs and super PACs, which we're gonna get into in a moment. <clears throat> but those have largely been, as I've followed the news, uh, questions about whether somebody reported what they needed to report to the FEC, and even if they didn't, if they ultimately reported, um, it's, it's my impression <clears throat> that any enforcement activity was more of a leniency, slap on the wrist, you know, okay, it's just a, it's a, it's a ministerial issue as opposed to a highly substantive issue. Do you concur with that? I think that's largely true and particularly true in recent years over the past decade or so earlier in my career. Um, so I moved to DC in 2004. I'd mentioned prior to that, I started my career post-law school during law school and post-law school at a little nonprofit in Los Angeles, the Center for Governmental Studies. In those earliest years of my career, I was mainly focused on municipal and state campaign finance and other election laws around the United States. And then I moved to DC in 2004 for a job at the Campaign Legal Center. And there my job was federal campaign finance law, um, working with engaging, watchdogging the Federal Election Commission. And in those earliest years, I didn't know how good I had it. We didn't know, being the larger sort of progressive reform watchdog community, we didn't know how well we had it because there were some Republicans on the Federal Election Commission who were willing to vote with Democrats to impose some fairly significant fines on so-called 527 groups that got involved in the 2004 presidential race. And those of us who are my age, your age, remember some of these names, Swift Boat Veterans for Truth, New Democrat Network, they're on both sides of the aisle in the 2004 race. And these are groups that just ignored federal campaign finance law, principally the contribution limits, 
did not show up at the FEC, did not register as committees, and therefore were raised and spent unlimited money in the 2004 election. They were like the first generation of soft money, unlimited soft money. And we got some enforcement actions. We got at the time what were record-breaking fines from the Federal Election Commission, hundreds of thousands of dollars um, approaching in, you know, into the million-dollar mark for fines for some of these groups. And at the time, my talking point was too little, too late, because the fines came in 2007, I believe, maybe starting in 06 into 07. That's when these enforcement actions were wrapped up by the FEC. And the fines were a relatively small percentage of the money that had been illegally spent by these groups in 2004. So my talking point 2006, 2007 was too little, too late. In retrospect, those were the good old days of actual enforcement of campaign finance laws. Um, so, you know, if you look back through the agency's entire history, you see that at various points in time, there was some willingness to enforce the laws, impose some fines that were significant. They had a little bit of bite. They stung a little bit for those who were fined, not as big as I would have wanted to see in those enforcement actions, but significant. Now I think the agency has devolved to the point that your description is quite fair, that when it does get around to finding a violation, it's often little more than a slap on the wrist, um, very small penalties, often dismissing enforcement actions, even when the agency concludes that the law was broken, they exercise what's called, um, well, they, they exercise their own administrative discretion, agency discretion, and they say, yeah, they broke the law, but it happened so long ago, or the amounts weren't that big, or let them go for whatever reason. Um, so yeah, well, it's, it's, uh, perceived, it's perceived to be a weak agency and very few players on the political landscape worry about the FEC. No one's afraid of the FEC. Well, let's, let's jump into where people continue to um, uh, wax uh, in favor of or um, against uh, what, what seems to be judicial law, supposedly, that is in some ways crept into, replaced, obfuscated, whatever. And that's <clears throat> Citizen United, uh, a Supreme Court case. Um, that is perceived, again, either to be the high water mark or the low water mark, or at least the starting point for where things started to, to come undone um, by a, a sort of a whole different philosophy. Prior to that, and tell me if I'm, uh, incorrect, the, the, the notion was individual human people contribute to campaigns. They have limitations on how much they can contribute. Um, Non-humans, as in corporations, nonprofit companies, uh, so on and so forth, they, they, there were significant limitations on what they could do, to whom they could devote it, and so on and so forth. And then we had this notion that we're still hearing about today, which is, you know, it's free speech, you know, money talks, so that's free speech. If you put uh, unnecessary restraints on contributions, um, you're doing something that violates the, the First Amendment, which I don't think any is responsible person really believes, but that's an argument that's being used. But tell us why is, what happened in Citizens United and 
why it's important. And then there's a later case that we talked about um, before we went, went on air that you can speak about as well. Um, I'm going to take like one to two minutes to work my way to Citizens United to give okay. a sort of full lay of the <laughs> land, the, the pillars of campaign finance law and restrictions. Going back to the early 1900s, we had the first major campaign finance law, the Tillman Act of 1907, in which corporations were prohibited by law from um, making political expenditures and contributions uh, over the course of the next few decades. That law was expanded in the 1940s, labor unions were added to that list. So through most of the 1900s, you had laws on the books saying corporations and unions could make political expenditures. They could not pay for ads that said vote for or vote against a candidate. And they also could not contribute directly to a candidate. The problem was there wasn't an enforcement agency. So compliance with these restrictions were kind of spotty, questionable. 1970s, in the wake of the Watergate scandal, which had a little bit to do with money and politics, we mostly forget about the bags of cash that were involved in Watergate, but um, that's when the Federal Election Campaign Act was amended to create the Federal Election Commission as an enforcer of these campaign finance laws. And at the same time in the 70s, we had an expansion of the campaign finance law. So we retained the ban on corporate and union political expenditures. We retained the ban on corporate and union contributions directly to candidates. And we got for the first time enforceable limits on contribute amounts of contributions from people like you and me, regular natural persons to candidates. And we got a fairly robust regime of campaign finance disclosure. Committees, groups spending money in federal elections had to file paperwork regularly with the Federal Election Commission disclosing where they got their money and how they were spending it. And that's those are the main pillars for the next few decades of campaign finance law. Then, as you mentioned, Citizens United changed a lot. Major, major pillar, this prohibition on corporate and union political expenditures um, was challenged in Citizens United case. This was a 501c4 nonprofit group that wanted to run ads to publicize uh, Hillary the movie, which was sort of a sham documentary. I think most filmmakers wouldn't consider it to be a very legit documentary, but at any rate, an attack, feature length attack ad on Hillary Clinton in the 08, 2008 presidential race. Um, they're an incorporated entity as a C4. They brought a lawsuit, went all the way to the Supreme Court, challenging the prohibition on corporations, spending money on express advocacy type candidate ads, vote for candidate X, vote against candidate Y, and they won. And the Supreme Court's reasoning, um, if you could call it that, was that because this group, this plaintiff, Citizens United, was not talking to candidates about the content of its ads, when it was running its ads, where it was running its ads, they were quote unquote independent expenditures. And because they were all this financial activity was ostensibly happening independently of candidates, it could not corrupt the candidates. Um, I should have mentioned in my sort of 100 year history of campaign finance law that a major landmark Supreme Court decision in 1976, Buckley v. Vallejo, that was a challenge right when Congress imposed these contribution limits, created the Federal Election Commission, the laws were challenged, it went to the Supreme Court in 1976. The Supreme Court said that contribution limits are permissible even under our First Amendment because they 
are narrowly tailored or sufficiently tailored to preventing corruption of politicians. The legal theory there in 1976 was if you big, give a big check to a politician, they might do you favors. That's bad for democracy, so it's permissible to limit the size of checks you can give to politicians. So back to Citizens United 2010. There the court said, no one's handing a check to the candidate. This is an independent group going to the local TV station, making an ad buy. Yeah, the ad's all about the candidates, but the lack of a close connection, the lack of the handing of a check from the corporation to the candidate means no threat of corruption. Absurd, in my view, struck me as absurd at the time for a few reasons, one of which was I knew at the time, because at that point I was more than a decade into a career immersed in our federal and state and local campaign finance laws, I knew that we had no effective laws. We did not have effective laws on the books to regulate the relationship between candidates and outside groups. We call these the coordination rules or the coordination laws. We knew in 2010 they were weak. So when the court said, don't worry, these outside groups can't corrupt candidates because their spending is independent, we thought their spending will be independent in a legal sense. It will not be independent in a practical sense in a way that any average person would think of as independence. Um, so the writing was on the wall at that point when this court decided Citizens United, but it got worse and it got worse quickly. It got worse because, and at, at during these years, I was at the Campaign Legal Center. I was involved in all of these cases. I was litigating cases from the district court level up through the circuit courts and to the Supreme Court. I was helping write briefs and file briefs in Citizens United. I was involved in brief writing in the case I'm about to describe. Um, and it was called Speech Now the versus Federal Election Commission. And that case, I think if I'm remembering correctly, it was initially filed in maybe 2008. It's, it began with an advisory opinion request to the Federal Election Commission. This group said, hey, we are not contributing, we're a PAC. We have a major purpose of influencing federal elections. We meet the federal law definition of political committee, but we're not contributing to candidates. We're not going to contribute directly to candidates. All we wanna do is make independent expenditures. All we wanna do is ad buys, mail pieces, whatever, um, but we're not talking to candidates about these ad buys. We don't think we should be subject to the contribution limits because up until that point in time, it well into the 2000s, it, up until 2010, um, it was not only candidate committees that were subject to these monetary contribution limits on contributions from people like you and me. It was also other PACs, any PAC, any group that had the major purpose of influencing federal candidate elections had to comply with contribution limits. This group said, we're not contributing to candidates. We're spending our money independently. So we cannot, we don't pose a threat of corruption that justifies these contribution limits. We don't think they should apply to us. Um, the FEC said, we don't have the power to undo those limits. Um, and the advisory opinion was really just sort of a necessary first step in this master plan of test, test case that this group was bringing. And so they were litigating that through the district court and the up to the DC Circuit Court of Appeals, the intermediate appellate court right below the US Supreme Court. At the same time, Citizens United was being litigated. So the Supreme Court decides Citizens United in January of 2010 and says, this corporate plaintiff's independent expenditures do not pose a threat of corruption, so they cannot be limited. That opened the floodgates, unlimited corporate and union spending in our elections. And then three months later, the DC Circuit Court uh, issued its decision in this other case, challenging the applicability of contribution limits to non-candidate, non-party PACs, the Speech Now case. And the court said, hey, three months ago, the US Supreme Court said independent spending doesn't pose a threat of corruption. 
and cannot be limited. So the money that you're raising to pay for those independent expenditures also cannot be limited. That was the birth of super PACs. That was the birth of groups that say, hey, we're not, we're only making independent expenditures. We're not contributing to candidates. They now, since 2010, since this uh, DC Circuit Court decision, have operated free of contribution limits. So the distinction between PACs and super PACs, what does that boil down to? Whether or not they have contribution limits. That's it. And the super PACs, and there's a, there's even a more recent chapter that I'll get to in 30 seconds, but the um, you know, the super PACs can raise unlimited funds. They could raise corporate money, union money, unlimited amounts from individuals, uh, all limits, except for the foreign. We have a longstanding prohibition on contribution of foreign nationals. That remains in place for super PACs. Um, it's about the only limit or restriction on fundraising by super PACs. Other PACs, I sometimes call them traditional PACs. These are PACs that um, make contributions directly to candidates. They're, they're still subject to contribution limits. And then the most recent development, um, almost a decade ago, I think it was 2014, uh, is the birth of what we call hybrid PACs. And this is rolling a super PAC and a traditional PAC into one entity. And so most political committees that are set up now, they have a super PAC account, unlimited money used for independent expenditures, and they have a traditional PAC bank account that's money raised under contribution limits that they could give directly to candidates and office holders. So I guess with the, ad, with the legitimization, so to speak, of super PACs and now the ability to run two concurrently, discussions that are specifically about PACs and potential issues about PACs, that seems to more or less have receded from the headlines that the, all anything that needs to really be done that involves um, money for the benefit, let's just say the benefit without loading it up, of certain candidates, that's the way to go. Because now we've seen an expansion in what money's being used for. Uh, and we'll get into talking about it from the standpoint of the ex-president and legal defense and so on and so forth. But it's the it's the super PAC, whether it's hybrid or not, is presumably where there's the biggest concern of corruption, corrupt purpose, taking you know one issue about can there be limits on on campaign spending and figuring out okay, well we're just going to say if it is truly independent, then you know there's not a a problem with that, but but none of that works in reality. I don't see how a super PAC, again, functionally can just come up on its own with an idea of something it wants to say about against a, a, a candidate and for a candidate without some communication, text, email, a wink, whatever, because it, 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 to me, it just seems like a big shell game. Yeah, you know, and I'll, I'll say that the there is still significant money in traditional PACs and candidate committees for the following reason. Um, wealthy donors that want to curry favor with elected officials, they start by giving as much as they can to the candidate. And then um, they also give to a PAC that can give to a candidate 
because the candidates want those dollars in their bank account if they can get them. They max out to those pots. And then they keep giving to the super PAC where there's no limit. So yes, you're right as a practical matter, super PACs are where the action is. Super PACs are where the threat of corruption is. And it's all because we have a legal theory that these groups are acting independently of candidates and the laws on the books that have not been touched since the Citizens United decision. No amendments to these coordination laws. They're wholly ineffective. Um, they don't require anything remotely resembling true independence. So what we say is an independent expenditure is not by any means in many cases, in any meaningful sense, the word actually independent from the candidate. And I'll give you, I'll give you the one, uh, one of the earliest, really most absurd examples, and it sort of feeds into where we are today. And I think then we can talk about candidates in the 2024 presidential election. So back in late 2014, Jeb Bush, then governor of Florida, begins teasing on Facebook that he is thinking about running for president in 2016. So more than two years prior, and or about two years prior. Um, and then in January of 2015, he and his team announced that they've started a super PAC, Right to Rise. And when asked, hey, you're not allowed to have a super PAC if you're a candidate, he said, well, I'm not a candidate yet. I haven't decided to be a candidate. Um, and he proceeded to spend six months raising $100 million into a super PAC in unlimited amounts, money that would be illegal if he had admitted at that point he was a candidate. It was obvious, and it would be illegal even if he had admitted that he was exploring candidacy because the federal campaign finance law candidate contribution limits kick in as soon as you start testing the waters of federal candidacy, as soon as you start exploring. He was clearly doing that, but he was willing to lie to the public. That's my take on it. I filed a complaint. I was at the Campaign Legal Center, filed two complaints that spring of 2015 against Jeb Bush. He actually... Um, so that he actually admitted, acknowledged that he was running or thinking about running a couple of times. He then, in retrospect, called it a slip of the tongue. And I've called it at the time a slip of the mask. He didn't, you know, um, he let his mask down. His lawyers had told him, don't, don't say you're running or even thinking about running until we raise 100 million. He did it June of 2015. He said, hey, I'm stepping away from right to rise. And then a day or two later, he said, guess what? I decided to run for president. Um, Right to Rise spent every penny of that, more than 100 million he raised for it in support of his failed candidacy. Um, and yeah, his, cam his campaign was a disaster, never really got any traction, but his maneuver of setting up a super PAC, raising $100 million into it, unlimited illegal to candidate money, stepping away from it, that became the model for how not only could there be sort of a relationship between candidates and outside groups, the candidate can actually form the super PAC and raise the money while denying they're a candidate and then say, hey, I'm no longer involved with this group. I'm stepping away, I'm gonna run for office. And the FEC let Jeb Bush get away with it. And it's been the wild west ever since with candidates close involvement with super PAC fundraising. So in the ex is, is a circumstance you're describing with Jeb Bush, um, just to put up, a sharp point to it, he actually was able to use money that was raised in his mind, not while he was a candidate or had intentions of being a candidate, but raise it. And then once he quote, jumped back into 
being a candidate or jumped into or acknowledged that he was a candidate, he could use the money that was previously raised when he wasn't a candidate. Yeah, the only the only qualification I would offer is that he wasn't using the money technically because he had stepped away from the super PAC, but the super PAC he created, the super PAC that was staffed by his closest advisors, it spent the money in support of his campaign. They knew what his policy priorities were. Right. They knew what his campaign themes right. were going to be. Uh, yeah. Okay. It's just to me again, and I think to you as well, it's more smoke and mirrors. It exactly. Doesn't, it doesn't matter. It didn't matter then that he stepped away because he already was doing it. And even if you give any credibility that he really wasn't, which there's no reason to give credibility there, but the money was already there raised when he was in control of the super PAC. So one could argue to who, to the wind, uh, you can't use that money. Uh, well, that I, you know, I, along with my colleagues at the Campaign Legal Center, argued to the Federal Election Commission and then to federal court that what Jeb Bush did was illegal. I thought we had a very strong legal argument. There is a provision of law. You know, so I've mentioned a few times this are the main pillars of our federal campaign finance laws passed in the 1970s. There was one major addition in 2002, the McCain-Feingold Law, the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act. And one of its central provisions said that the contribution limits, not only do they apply to a candidate or an office holder, they also apply to any entity direct, directly or indirectly established, financed, maintained, or controlled by a candidate or office holder. We call it the soft money ban. And what we argued to the Federal Election Commission in 2015 in the Jeb Bush matter was right to rise was established by a candidate. The FEC did not act on the complaint. I think they were missing a quorum for a few years and the commissioners were divided along partisan lines in their willingness to enforce the law. Um, so the campaign, that cam complaint kind of died on the vine. There's a five-year statute of limitations. If the FEC doesn't act within five years, they're barred from acting on a complaint. So it was FEC inaction, FEC failure to enforce a law on the book since 2002 that clearly prohibited what Jeb Bush did. Um, they didn't enforce it, and that created the precedent for other candidates to follow and do the same thing. And if I'll play devil's advocate to myself, I think the argument you would hear from an opponent to my complaint in the Jeb Bush matter would be, well, the statute says an entity directly or indirectly established, financed, maintained, or controlled by a candidate or office holder. Jeb Bush was not a candidate or office holder when he set up the super PAC. My interpretation is the statute's meaningless unless it applies to individual humans who become candidates. Right. Um, I mean, we could spend um, four more hours on this. I yeah. mean, the thing that occurs to me is, and maybe there's a definition, when are you a candidate? Let's say that Jeb Bush never uttered the words, I am a candidate, but went ahead and made speeches in Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina and all the early um, you know, primary uh, situations, but never said the words, that, 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 sh that shouldn't count <coughs> to me in the de determination of whether he is or is not a candidate. Well, I'll tell you, I, I became somewhat obsessed with that specific point of law. When does a person become a candidate? Back around 2010. And I have 
uh, over the course of the years become maybe the one of the nation's leading experts or maybe the leading expert on this piece of federal law. When does a person become a candidate? So if you were to go to my website, paulsryan.com and click on the policy page, you'll find a report that I wrote in 2020 called Testing the Waters or, or Diving Right In, How Candidates Bend and Break Campaign Finance Laws in Presidential Campaigns. And it's a report all about that question. When does a person become a candidate? All right, well, let me again, uh, let me do something I should have done earlier. Let me reintroduce Paul Ryan. And I'm just gonna say he is an amazingly astute, knowledgeable individual about all things campaign, finance, election laws, and so on and so forth. And not only did I fail to introduce him earlier, I've buried the lead here, which is probably what most people are anxious to hear about, which is, okay, talk to us about what has been in the news for several weeks, getting more and more play, not going away, which is millions and millions of dollars that are somehow finding their way into the hands of lawyers who are representing uh, the ex-president in a number of, or you know, at this point, a number of actions um, that involve January 6th and involve, you know, a, a bunch of other stuff. How, how is that allowed? How is that, how does that even happen? Um, even given, you know, the judicial precedent and the weaknesses of the FEC and so on and so forth. Well, it's a, it's a tricky and complicated legal issue because on the one hand, when you have politicians raising money to pay lawyers, you kind of want those um, dollars to be raised subject to the campaign finance laws if the litigation itself, if the lawsuits, if the legal expenses relate to politics. And in so in federal campaign finance law, the FEC has a test in its regulations to distinguish between personal expenses and political expenses. You can't use campaign dollars, political dollars to pay personal expenses. You can, and in many instances, you must use campaign dollars to pay for political expenses. But the, the line makes sense. Um, the way the FEC has interpreted and applied that particular line to legal expenses has made sense. Um, that's not an area where I fault the FEC. Um, however, one the extraordinary thing, the headline grabbing piece of Trump world this week is that, um, I got a call from a reporter on Saturday um, saying, we got word that in the campaign finance disclosure reports, Trump and related PACs will file on Monday, we'll see that he's spent more than $40 million this year on lawyers. What do you think of that? And I thought that is an extraordinary sum. It's typical for a presidential campaign over the course of the entire campaign to spend a few million dollars on lawyers, single digits paying a law firm to make sure they're complying with all the campaign finance laws and to file the necessary work or necessary paperwork with the Federal Election Commission. 40 million is an astounding figure. I've never heard anything like it in my now quarter century of watchdogging money in politics. Um, legal, it's perfectly legal. And in some ways, the fact that this money is flowing through political committees is desirable because we get the disclosure. We know where the money comes from, but it's nevertheless extraordinary. And it's a reflection on a president who, in my opinion, 
broke so many laws while running for president in 2016, while serving as president in, from 2017 through 2020 into 2021, and after leaving office in 2021, that he's broken so many laws that in that respect, the legal bills are not um, surprising, but nevertheless, remarkable. Well, let me, I'm, I may be slipping on a banana peel here, but let me just pose this question. I get what you're saying, uh, and hopefully our listeners will get uh, what you're saying about money that sh is going for the process of getting elected or campaigning. And if it goes to lawyers, you know, to deal with disclosure issues or defend off challenges about that, that might make sense. And presumably, according to what you're saying, is legal. But here we're talking about expenses, you know, if I go back to Stormy Daniels, expenses relating to uh, silencing somebody from disclosing some, quote, embarrassing thing about Trump, to money that is going to defend Donald Trump against cr in criminal proceedings for things he did that, you know, arguably were related to the campaign, but really in a very loose sense, not related. I mean, whatever he did, in January 6th, you know, we all know, most people know, the election was over. He was he was just simply trying to overturn the election. It just doesn't seem reasonable, right, ethical, moral, or legal that, that those kinds of expenditures um, can be paid for by a super PAC. What am I missing? Well, it's important to think about the alternative. So if he were not using PAC money, Canada campaign money to pay these lawyers, then the, these payments would be entirely outside of the scope of campaign finance law. And the money would be coming from who knows where, Trump billionaire, millionaire backers and supporters with no public disclosure. And he's a candidate now, again, once again. So when you talk about contribution limits serving the purpose of preventing corruption, because candidates and office holders could be corrupted by getting big checks, from their friends, well, $40 million in legal bills being picked up by a friend of Trump without any disclosure, that's more troubling to me than the fact that he is paying for these legal expenses with political money. But here's the thing when it comes to political contributions, donor beware. And you know, if it were true that donors, you know, if the fact pattern were different and donors didn't know Trump as Trump, then I'd have more concern too. But anyone who's giving money to Donald Trump in 2023 is probably fine with the fact that he's paying his lawyers because they view the legal prosecutions themselves. I don't think it's unfairly, but they view them as political persecution of a sort. So I hear you on like, whoa, why are we using PAC money to pay for these legal bills? But again, it's important to think of the alternative. Who's paying these legal bills if it weren't money, disclosed money flowing through political committees? It would be undisclosed money from people who were also trying to buy favor with Trump. Well, I, I think I certainly understand your point, And that's the point that I picked up on in, um, the, in many uh, media reports where you were quoted saying there's no quote, red flags per se. But it seems to me that the, it's, it's really cold comfort to say, well, the, at least we know about it because there are, because it's going through the super PAC and because that requires disclosure. 
So it's not like it's completely under the table, but I, you know, cynically say, who cares? If, even if it's disclosed, I mean, there's lots of stuff that he discloses every day on, on Truth Social or whatever. We know about it. It's still reprehensible. It's still malignant. It still, you know, basically thwarts the idea of, you know, democracy and so on and so forth. Well, so, let me go ahead. Let me just, I'll take another cut at this, which is that, um, to me, the troubling thing isn't that you have various Trump PACs paying these legal bills. To me, the troubling thing is that you have a front runner for a major party presidential race who has engaged in so much unlawful and lawless behavior that he's got $40 million in legal bills. <laughs> I mean, the problem here is Trump and everyone around Trump who has supported him in his lawless behavior, running for president, winning the presidency, serving as president, and then in the aftermath. Um, Trump and his supporters around him, they're the problem. The fact that we have $40 million in legal bills or more is a symptom of this individual who, in my view, is unfit to have ever served as president and is unfit to serve as president again um, post-2024. No, no argument there. Let me just, again, give one more swipe at this. Wouldn't we be all better served if there was an absolute law or Supreme Court holding, which obviously isn't absolute because we know what's happening to stare decisis, but if there was the state of the law was, if you are involved in a, in a proceeding, criminal or otherwise, but let's just say criminal, and in, in, in which you are, you know, alleged, obviously he's not been proven, alleged to have, uh, committed various kinds of corruption, espionage, whatever, that money that's raised through PACs, super PACs, raised, you know, under the auspices that you're a candidate, that, that just doesn't float. We're not letting, we're not going to let you do that. Can't, can't there be a law like that, even given the, the judicial precedent from citizens and uh, speech now and so on and so forth, or am I off base? I, I wouldn't support such a law because I think the alternative universe is worse. The alternative, you pass the law you've just described, can't use political committee money to pay these lawyers bills. I get back to then who pays them? And that is undisclosed, unlimited amount friends of Trump. Um, I'd rather at least know about it than not know about it. And you've, you've take cold comfort in the disclosure. Um, the amounts of money aren't going to change in the world after passing the law you've just described. The only change really is it's not disclosed money flowing through political committees. It's undisclosed money coming from who knows where, foreign nationals, for example. Right now, at least we know that the people, the money paying for Trump's legal bills, pretty certain, not coming from foreign nationals. The world that would follow from the bill you've just described, who knows? Who knows? Maybe it's Vladimir Putin paying Trump's legal bills in unlimited amounts, and it's perfectly legal because we passed a law saying Trump, not only was he not required to use political money, he's under your proposed law, prohibitive from using political money to pay these bills. The right. bills are going to get paid. No, you've, well, you certainly convinced me that um, the, my proposed solution is not going to be uh, workable at the end. So I'll, so I'm letting it go. I mean, I guess what we could come to at this point is saying until and unless 
everything about Citizens United and so on and so forth is rolled back. And we just simply say corporations and unions can't contribute, which is presumably not in my lifetime ever going to happen. Then we, we've got this problem. But we only have a few minutes left. And I want to hit on one thing, if you um, would allow. And, and that is that um, the issue about legal fees being paid for persons who are um, indicted or likely to be witnesses together with communication, which has been reported by Washington Post and MSNBC, blah, 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 and, and admitted to, I guess, that um, these folks who Trump obviously does not want to flip uh, against him, that they've been told, well, your legal fees will be paid and that money is also coming out of the super PACs. What, where, where do we, what do we deal with in terms of that issue? Well, the, the issue that it tees up is, is there a legal ethical conflict of interest here? And every state licenses lawyers working in those states. They have their own code of conduct. And this fact pattern, it raises concerns. It is not per se, it is not automatically impermissible or unethical, but it could unfold in ways where these co-defendants of Donald Trump, they are not getting effective assistance of counsel. They're not getting effective representation by their lawyers because their lawyers are paying, being paid by Trump and Trump allies who have different interests and different goals than these co-defendants. But um, for better or worse in our legal system, those sorts of issues are handled on a case-by-case -case basis in a court and a, you know, bar association for a particular state, they would look at the specific facts and they would want to know, hey, lawyer for co-defendant, did you act in the best interest of this co-defendant or did you really take your orders from Trump and team Trump to the detriment of this co-defendant's own legal defense? And my response to that, again, is pish posh. If we're only talking about ethical issues and about whether Let a particular lawyer is effective, I mean, because the other part of it is if they don't have money coming from Trump, then they don't have money for counsel, and then they don't have effective counsel, and then that becomes a basis. I, I just, it's disturbing to me. It is probably, it's the truth. It's disturbing to me. But I just want to say at this point that I am um, delighted that you were willing to come on and give us a lot more knowledge than we had about this very confusing, complex argument. I want to thank Paul Ryan. Uh, give the website again, if you don't mind, as to how people can find out more about you and what you're doing. PaulSRyan.com. That's an S as in Seamus, my middle name, PaulSRyan.com. Okay. Well, again, thank you so much. I hope you'll come back again and um, We'll get on with some other issues that are still out there that we haven't covered, but this has been uh, tremendous. Thanks again, Paul. Thanks for having me, Mark.